The first cut on this record has been cross-format focused for airplay success. The men beat on their drums. And welcome to Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. My name is Alex Doherty and my guest today is Maya Goodfellow. We spoke about her new book, Hostile Environment, How Immigrants Became Scapegoats, which is out now from Verso Books. If you'd like to hear the extended version of today's interview, then please consider becoming a supporter of the show. You can get access to extended versions of all PTO episodes from $3 a month, which is just over £2. Go to patreon.com forward slash poll theory other to sign up. As always, you can listen to PTO on SoundCloud, iTunes, Acast and all other good podcast applications. And you can also follow the show on Facebook and Twitter. The handle is at poll theory other. And if you've been enjoying PTO, please consider rating the show on iTunes. It makes a big difference in helping the show to reach new listeners. Maya Goodfellow is a writer, researcher and academic. She has written for the New York Times, The Guardian, The New Statesman, Al Jazeera and The Independent. She received her PhD from SOAS, part of the University of London, and she's a trustee of the Runnymede Trust. You start the book talking about some of the the personal experiences of people who've come to Britain and attempted to navigate the immigration system. Could you talk a bit about that system, both in terms of the hostile environment and in particular that seemingly deliberate complexity of the system that seems designed less to guide people through a process, but rather to exhaust and demoralise and put people off from continuing to try and navigate through that system? Yeah, I mean, what I learned from talking to the people who, you know, were trying to move through the immigration and asylum system is that it is incredibly complex, as you say. So it's really difficult to navigate. And what you find is when you talk to people who work as immigration advisors or lawyers, they say, you know, even we struggle to understand, like, this is our job is to understand (laughs) the system. And even we really struggle, struggle to understand this. And so, you know, especially when you think about some of the people who are trying to get status in the UK, English maybe isn't their first language. And so like having to make sense of what is a, already a very complicated system, but in a language that is not your first, it adds another layer of complexity and difficulty. And there's really like not not very much in place in order to help people with that. And, you know, you, I did talk to some people who said it, it felt like it was kind of designed to be that way. But you really see the, I think one of the most obvious ways that we can understand uh, just how cruel our immigration system is, is like looking at the cost. And this is the cost for basically everyone that has to move through the immigration system in terms of the financial cost. Mm. So we're at a stage where if you want an re- email reply from the Home Office about your status, you have to pay around £5 for that. Yeah. Um, people have to pay hundreds of pounds, thousands of pounds for some people to for visa costs, things like paying for English tests if you are deemed to need one. Um there is so many 
so many stages and so many price tags at each of those stages. There is just huge, huge financial cost to a lot of people who want to try and stay in the UK or come to the UK. And part of the problem with that is not only is that obviously incredibly difficult for people who don't have lots of money and you know if even for people who do there should be a question of why you should have to spend such great amounts of money to stay in this country mm. it is just how difficult it is to get support moving through that system so there are a lot of really good organizations that give voluntary advice and guidance to people who are undocumented or people who are trying to regularize their status or trying to figure out what their status is and how they can get status there is a lot of there are a lot of really good organizations doing that work but they are run by volunteers they are often run on small grants or individual donations and there's very very little state support for people so you kind of saw the decimation of legal aid so we talk a mm. lot about the decimation of legal aid but that has really also impacted people who are migrants and people who are trying to seek refuge in the UK yeah i guess it's talked more usually about the court system isn't it rather than about migration per se yeah, exactly. And so what I just found is speaking to a lot of people that they just struggled to get any legal representation. And when they did, they weren't sure it was always reliable. And mm. it means that people are, are people who are able to do that are forking out huge amounts of money on top of the existing fees. And, you know, a lot of people I talked to were in a situation where they couldn't get any state support because they were still waiting on their status to be regularised or to find out what was going to happen with their applications. And so they were forced to either become homeless or sleep on friends sofas they aren't able to work and you know you have this very very difficult situation for a lot of people where they mm. want to stay in the country or come to the country but it's really difficult to do so and just trying to make it through that maze you know I spent so long trying to understand all the bits of immigration legislation all the different visa types and all the different hoops people have to jump through and it's so hard to understand I spent so long trying to understand it and so for people who have to make sense of it because their ability to stay in the UK is dependent on it. Hmm. I, it's just so hard to see how people do it. It really does take its toll on people. And I think I think if most people understood just the, the state of our immigration system, they'd be a bit more sceptical about calling for more controls, as is often the desire from a lot of our politicians. And in terms of the expense of trying to you know, navigate the system, how is that justified? I mean, do, do you get the sense that it is simply designed to put people off and to make it harder for people and, and to make people give up? Or, or does it have some relationship to austerity and the cutting of budgets? And so different you know, government departments want to sort of claw back as much money from, from people as they can. Yeah, I think it's actually really difficult to say why this is. You have seen a real uptick in particularly in recent years of the fees rising. But I actually spoke to a woman who worked with immigrants who were trying to move through the system, representing them legally. And what she said is in particular, like from like the midway through the new Labour years, you do kind of see this increase was her argument. And you see the rolling back of, of state support as well for people trying to make it through the system. And I mean, the thing is, is one person I did interview said it really feels like the cost and the complexity is meant to deter you. So exactly mm. what you're saying, that it's supposed to put you off. It's really hard to say for sure. But I think that one thing we can say is the costs far outstrip the cost of processing applications. So, you know, money is being made off of this. And one of the things that I think suggests that that is the case or, you know, we can kind of infer that it is, is that the Conservatives 
recently announced that they would like to reduce the visa costs for medics who want to come to the UK. Mm. And it does make you question, if you can do that, then how are you justifying these huge costs for everyone else? You're just going to leave those in place, but you're going to roll it back a bit. It's still going to be costly, but you're going to reduce it a bit for for people who are going to work in the NHS. Um, So it looks kind of arbitrary. Yeah, I think that it, it's 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 hard to say why, but it certainly isn't fair. Politicians talk about a fair system, and we know that the the cost of it all is is definitely not fair. Regarding the interviews you did for the book, I mean, what what sort of experience was that? You know, you've got some very sad stories in the book. You know, people who couldn't go to the funerals of their loved ones because of you know they were treated as a suspect, and that they would use the trip to migrate to the UK. You talk about suicides related to you know people who'd uh, gone through the system, and that it, it seemed that that had led to their taking their own lives. How how did you find that that process? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's obviously incredibly harrowing and it is, it is awful, you know, hearing the things that people have experienced and are still experiencing. So when, you know, at times when I was interviewing certain people, they were saying, you know, I still don't have status. I'm still in a situation where I can't get state support and I am without barely any support, apart from maybe friends helping me out and letting me sleep on their sofas. But, you know, anything I'm hearing is absolutely nothing in comparison to the things that people are actually experiencing. And if anything, hearing and really researching about the impacts, all the the different pernicious impacts of the UK's immigration system historically, as well as in the contemporary moment, it really it really made me really determined to write the book even more it, um, mm. and to think, you know, because you are surrounded by this discourse of there needs to be some kind of controls, immigration is a problem. And so when you are surrounded by that, it, it is um, is turned into something of common sense. People really think, well, you know, immigration is a problem that needs to be controlled. And this was really just hearing about it was really just a reminder not that we necessarily need it because it's all around us. The impact of the system is so, is so you know, it's, it's in things like the Windrush scandal. It is in things like news reporting that we now have about things like the hostile environment. But it was a rem- reminder of just how inaccurate that, that discourse is and how damaging the system can be to people. The real impact, you know, just on individual people as opposed to seeing this as mm. like numbers on the sheet or kind of abstract ideas about how people are being impacted by policy. It really it really is a reminder that this has a very, very human impact. Presumably part of that human impact is obviously not in all cases, but in, in certain cases, you know, a significant part of, of Britain's migrant population is engaged in work, which is somewhat invisible. You know, it's people doing jobs that we don't necessarily see at hours when a lot of other people are doing other things. That's one of the things that I often think about this idea of, you know, you find in political discourse of this idea of the left behind is left behind communities and um, politicians sometimes say they dislike immigration and it's true there are lots of people who have been left behind all around the UK you know whole mm. communities that have been um, totally decimated by deindustrialization or um, lack of investment but part of that so-called left behind is also the people who like keep the economy going and that includes migrant workers so the people who do get up in the early hours of the morning to go and clean some of the offices that people work in and people who are paid you know, huge salaries, their surroundings are cleaned or kept by people who are on incredibly low pay and who are treated as if they are consistently like a problem in the UK. Mm. And I think one of the real lies about the immigration debate 
is that the same politicians, I do think that the same politicians who say that immigration is bad for the economy, that is bad for people's pay, that is bad for conditions, even though we know, we know that isn't true, they know that it is the same immigrants that they're treating as a problem are the same people who are integral to the functioning of the British economy. Mm. And I, I don't want to talk about people in those terms. I think people should be paid better. I think they should have better rights. I don't think the status quo is fine. But mm. those politicians who escape going, those immigrants, do want to protect that status quo. And so I think there is a, um, there's a real lie at the heart of that debate about what they actually want to happen and what they're saying they want to happen with regards to immigration. It's, it's convenient for them to say that, I think. I, I guess it's probably hard to sort of tease out what parts of our immigration system have a certain sort of economic rationality to them in that they're to the, the perceived benefit of, of business and what parts of it are propaganda exercise or, or, or aimed at keeping the, you know, the tabloid press on side and diverting certain grievances towards migrants rather than other things. Yeah, and I think a good example of like where you find people who happen to be born in a different country who've moved to the UK are integral to the functioning of part of the, um, a, a, one part of the UK's economy is somewhere like care work. Right? So this would be mm. considered as so-called low-skilled immigration. I don't really accept that term of low and high-skilled and how that's being defined. Mm. Um, but that is totally invisibilized in the debate. It's, it's not really considered. I mean, there are, there are moments when it is, but in, in, on the whole, when immigration is being problematized in that way, the, the important, hard, incredibly like work that requires a lot of empathy a lot of time and effort for very, very little pay, something like care work is ignored. But I would say that for the left, at least, one of the problems with how people engage with that debate is they think that the way to potentially, so you have had this whole debate around free movement in Europe, and I've heard some people say, you know, the way to kind of address this idea of people of people being paid poverty pay and in terrible conditions, people who migrated to the UK, is to stop that movement. And I don't think that's the case. I don't think you stop the movement because I think that also takes away people's agency. But what you do is you then need better employment protections. You need to ensure that people know their rights and that those rights are decent rights. And I think that sometimes gets lost in this debate about exploitation and low pay in Britain because it's convenient to talk about immigrants as separate from the rest of the British population. Yeah. Any other British workers who are low paid actually this is, they're all part of the working class. Mm. And we shouldn't be dividing that up along national national lines because that is what that is what the anti-immigration arguments are based on, dividing up who is the legitimate worker and who is the illegitimate worker. And so I think it is incumbent upon a left that cares about the working class and, and workers' rights and justice for all to include, to treat so-called immigrant populations as, as central to that and not separate from it. Historically, how do you assess the British left has done? Because in the book, I mean, you, you know, you talk about the history of the Labour Party. I mean, just just last week, there was a letter published in The Guardian by some public figures explaining that they couldn't vote Labour in this election because of Jeremy Corbyn's alleged tolerance of anti-Semitism. And, and one of the signatories was the pop historian Tom Holland, who subsequently wrote a tweet in which he said that, I just wish Labour... Britain's Progressive Party, the party that has indeed always stood up tall against anti-Semitism and all forms of racism, were well shot of Corbyn, and I hope that it's uh, that soon it will be. And yeah, I imagine that's not a characterisation of the Labour Party or the broader left that you would you would recognise. Yeah, I mean, I think I think you can recognise the specificity of how 
anti-Semitism isn't well understood in parts of the left and mm. the problem that has existed under Labour now and, you know, not dealing with some of that particularly well without, I think you can talk about that, without mischaracterizing Labour's past. Mm. And so one of the issues is that Labour is, and Labour declares itself as such as an anti-racist party. And it's true, there are parts of the Labour movement and there have been Labour MPs and there have been activists within the Labour Party as well as outside of the Labour Party who have who have been anti-racists, who have pushed for things like the Race Relations Act and really demanded change and have achieved change in some important ways. And so you don't want to erase that. But to suggest mm. that the Labour Party as a whole has been an anti-racist party is really to misunderstand Labour's past. And so what you have is, if you look at the immigration debate in particular, is you have a real acceptance from significant parts of the Labour Party and the Conservative Party, the immigration is a problem to be dealt with, particularly when you have people people who are citizens of Britain, but were perceived to be immigrants coming from the colonies and former colonies, so particularly people of colour, coming to the UK, there were attempts and a discussion about how to introduce legislation to stop to make it more difficult for those people to come. But what Labour and Conservative politicians didn't want to do is make it explicitly color-coded. They didn't want to make it explicitly about race. Mm. So they did it implicitly. And so what you find is this, I mean, this particular piece of legislation, it wasn't particularly subtle, but you have things like the Commonwealth Immigrants Act of 1968, which was directly aimed at making it more difficult for Asian people who were living in Kenya, who wanted to leave Kenya um, when Kenya became independent and due to a number of law changes within Kenya, you find the Labour government at the time introducing legislation that makes it far more difficult for them to come. And the reason they do that is widely agreed by academics, most academics now, that that was about race. And so you have these moments, actually, where the Labour Party is reproducing racialized narratives of who is the good immigrant, who is the bad immigrant, who belongs and who doesn't. And that is one of like, Labour's legacies is reproducing those narratives. Mm. And I think that is often forgotten. And there is an argument that is made by certain academics that Labour was the party that introduced the Race Relations Act, right? It's only ever the Labour Party that does that, including New Labour. It's not the Conservatives who introduced those pieces of race relations legislation. But at the same time, when you get that in the 60s, at the same time as saying there needs to be, you know, for the necessary criticisms that are made of those Race Relations Act, they did also enshrine in law particular principles and protections that, that are important. It's the same time as doing that and saying, OK, we need to have protections for people of colour in Britain, despite the problems with those protections, that, that did happen. But at the same time as saying that, the Labour Party is also saying, oh, but we also need legislation to keep, to make it more difficult for people of colour to get here. So we're okay with a particular number of people who should have rights when they're here, but in mm. terms of people coming, that should be more difficult. And that is quite widely accepted uh, among parts of the, the Labour Party at the time. As I say, there are people who resist that, who challenge that. There is a really important strain of anti-racism within the Labour Party that exists in things like the black sections, and you have people like Diane Abbott, who you know, is now the Shadow Home Secretary, but was really fighting for a lot of those changes in, in the 80s and 90s. So it's not to say that that didn't exist, but to say that Labour was an anti-racist party in its entirety, I think, uh, I think is a is an erasure of huge bits of Labour Party history.
Yeah, um, including a, a history of anti-Semitism on parts of the left in, in the early part of the 20th century, right? Yeah, you get in the early 1900s, one of the first pieces of modern immigration legislation, the 1905 Aliens Act, was really directed at Jewish people fleeing pogroms. Mm. And that was, you know, you had people across the political spectrum then talking about those Jewish people as threatening to undermine British wages, but also is bad for British culture. So the very same arguments we hear now against immigration, obviously there's, there's changes in how they're articulated um, and they, they do change a bit, but they are very, very similar to the arguments that are made now and to the arguments that were made in the 60s and 70s about, about immigration. And so what you do find is sometimes the groups of, of the immigrants that are problematized might change. They still remain in the debate. You know, you can still, you still have this anti-Semitism in the debate now the less in the immigration debate. The groups may change at times, but the, the tropes remain quite similar. And, I mean, how would you want to explain Labour's failings over, over, over migration over the years? I mean, is it to do with the fact that whether we're talking about the right of the party or the centre or, or even parts of the left of the party as well, that Labour historically has been a, a, an accommodationist party when it comes to capitalism and to, and to empire... And that the, you know, the number of, of, of Labour MPs who've been sort of very sort of firmly anti-imperialist or, or anti-capitalist is, is very few. And that if one thinks of capitalism as perhaps sort of necessarily racist and, and structured by racism to a very significant extent, that accommodation with imperialism and, and capitalism more or less entails some kind of acceptance of, of, of racist policy around migration. Yeah, I certainly think that that is part of it. And I think it's a really good question because I think the way we can maybe analyse it works differently for different parts of the Labour Party as well, like different parts of the Labour movement too. Mm. And so I think that is certainly part of it. And like part of the problem is declaring yourself an anti-racist doesn't make you one. <laughs> so de declaring yourself pro-immigration, for instance, and caring about migrants' rights doesn't mean that you are. You ha That is something that requires work and analysis and thinking about the ways that these very insidious arguments about race and immigration are knitted into the debate and knitted into, as you suggest, the way our economy is structured. But interestingly, I think on the, in particular with the thinking about the labour movement, I think one of the one of the reasons why you see this manifestation of anti-immigration sentiment that would not always be expressed so starkly. Like now you don't, you wouldn't necessarily hear it in such clear terms, but it's there in thinking about, you know, this idea that immigration is undercutting wages or immigrants are mm. undercutting wages of British people. I would argue that part of that does stem from a socialism in one country kind of mindset. Mm, yeah. So like an idea of like either... Is the the state the like the nation that matters and the people within it the people perceived to be a British worker and so that that includes race then right so different people would probably argue differently about who the British worker is but what you have in those arguments about the so-called traditional labour heartlands is often it's coded as white these mm. areas that are coded as, they may not be wholly white but are coded as such yeah. and so there you kind of have this overhang of the 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 white worker as being the legitimate worker. But when it's more expansive, when the, the, the definition of who is a worker is more expansive, I think it doesn't include all immigrant populations or all people who happen to be born in another country. And so that line of Labour being internationalist as well is kind of limited for some people. Amongst some of those people, there is a belief that you have to get the state, that you have to get the UK in order, and then you can think about beyond the UK. And I think that's a misunderstanding of how internationalism should function in your like conceptualization of what your politics is and what the state is and thinking about 
actually truly internationalist politics would be treating people all around the world as part of the global working class and caring about that, having that as central to your politics at home as well. Coming up to the present and the and the, the Windrush scandal, there seem to be sort of two ways of, of reading the, the popular reaction to Windrush. There was a great deal of very justified outrage at, at what the government was doing. The government was was forced to adapt to, to that outrage. And, you know, you can sort of look at this, the Windrush case and, and think, well, this shows that the left can win on the question of migration, that we can we don't have to be defensive. We can defend people's right to, to be here. But then the flip side of that would seem to be that if we think about contemporary racism with regard to migration, it's not really articulated in terms of, of a sort of you know, biological scientific racism that we associate with, with neo-Nazism. It's much more articulated in terms of the economy and this idea of kind of limited resources and we can only take so many people. And so that particular demographic isn't problematized because they're here, they've been here for a long time. It's, it's new migrants who are pointed to as the problem. And, and one can see the Windrush case as just an example where the government hadn't really laid, well, the government and sort of the broader culture hadn't laid the groundwork, the ideological groundwork to uh, victimize that population. You know, the, the tabloids weren't focusing particularly heavily on, on the Windrush generation. It was, it was you know, new migrants uh, perhaps coming from the EU or elsewhere, but certainly not so much people who'd been here a long time. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a truth to, in some ways, to both of the things you just said. I would say a few things about it. One is something that the journalist Gary Young has said, which was that the government knew that this was, or knew that this, there was a possibility this was going to happen, that this particular generation of people were going to get caught up in the hostile environment and they didn't do anything about it. And the, the argument mm. he makes is they didn't think people would care. Yeah. And so the fact that they did care is something to know and I think that it is important. And I think on that, you know... It's true that the the so-called Windrush generation were not the people who are not the people who were demonized on the front of our newspapers at this particular moment, not the people treated as the problem population. But for a lot of people, there is still a slippage between immigration and race. And so if you know after the EU referendum, the spike in hate crimes was also directed towards British-born people of colour. Yeah, and if yeah. you think about the fact that that breaking point poster that Nigel Farage stood in front of, it was supposed to, you know, the, that referendum was supposed to be about European like migration, so free movement, which is coded as white. We know that Europe isn't, like, wholly white. Um, mm. uh, but we know that it is coded as such, or for a lot of people, that is how it's seen and imagined. And the poster that Nigel Farage stood in front of was not white migrants it was brown refugees right and so we know that race is still present in the debate so i think that it is still something that people cared it is still some it, it does still matter that people didn't just think oh well who really cares about this there was huge like, there was days and days like throughout my research for this book i have never found a moment in british history when immigration was on the front of British newspapers, not because it was being problematized, but because the outcome <laughs> yeah. of British policy was being questioned, immigration yeah. policy. And so I think that is something to, to note. And it is, I do think that the left and people who care about migrants' rights and um, see this as central to their politics should see this as an example of the fact that you don't, you know, it's this isn't just about, politics isn't just about responding to public opinion. It's also about changing it. Right, you're in the the business of politics because you care about a particular set of ideals and you mm. want to implement those and you want to change society for the better in line with those. 
But I also think it is true that there was a kind of good migrant versus bad migrant narrative. And I would know, like at this stage, you know, the, most of these people who were impacted by Windrush weren't migrants. They didn't come as migrants. They came as British citizens. And I think that the, the fact that that it was not so well understood in the debate is should be cause for alarm. I mean, it, perhaps it's not surprising, but it suggests that British history, Britain's history of empire isn't particularly well known. Because one of the, there was a leaked, one of the internal investigations, I believe, within the Home Office into the Windrush, the so-called Windrush scandal, it was leaked to Channel 4, or Channel 4 but it was able to get hold of an early copy. And in it, it said, you know, Home Office staff should be better educated on the history of empire. And you think, if Home Office staff need to be, then the rest of us need to be as well, right? Yeah. How, how, how well is this understood? But the good good migrant, bad migrant narrative is still very much there, yes. And, you know, there was it was very much people really focused on the fact that these people had been here for a long time, that they had contributed in the right way. And it does still leave you with this other side of the narrative where if you don't contribute in the right way, you aren't seen as the right kind of person to be in the country, then you'll still be treated as in really, really terrible ways. And that is partly why the hostile environment, despite the Windrush scandal, despite that the government policy being put under a microscope and put on display in this way, much of that legislation is still in place. Many people are still being denied the access to basic services because of government policy. And it's interesting that the Labour Party have said they would end the hostile environment, and I think that's incredibly important and good. But there was, in some quarters, still a kind of acceptance of this narrative of, of illegal immigration, so-called illegal immigration, what I would call people who are undocumented, mm. because I think this term illegal is, is so incredibly dehumanising is still being a problem. There was still this kind of acceptance of that. And that tells us that there's a, there's a limit to how far the debate had been pushed and changed. And I think it is incumbent upon people to then push back against that further, to question some of these terms, to question some of these, these commonplace narratives within the debate about who is a problem and who is not, and who is racialized as a threat and who is not. So I think there's it's quite a long way of saying, I think there's some still some cause for, for hope and to look at what happened there and to recognize that when people understand the real pernicious nature of the system, they don't necessarily like it, but also to recognise there are limitations to that. And, you know, we, we shouldn't only be advocating for change upon what, what public opinion says. We should really be trying to change that, I think. You've already touched on this, this narrative around migration is kind of accepted to the extent that people, people contribute. And so there's a sort of an economic rationality to it. So if, if, you, if you are perceived as being beneficial to the economy, that it's, that it's fine for you to come and it's good for you to be here. And in the book, you have a, a chapter on, on New Labour and you talk about the quite different treatment of the question of migration and of, uh, and of asylum by, by New Labour, uh, which, which seems to, to fit into that in, to, to, to some extent. Could you, could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so I think there's a few things to say with New Labour with regards to that. One is that they do, when they, they do come into office, and they do attempt to change the debate and, and actually the system, the immigration system in some ways. So they kind of reject this idea of numbers. So you have um, mm. people like Bar Barbara Roach making speeches um, in the 2000s about, you know, immigration is good for the economy. They won't necessarily be drawn on numbers. But at the same time as that is happening, they have an incredibly, incredibly hostile and negative rhetoric and policy around asylum. So this idea that there are supposed huge numbers of people coming into the country who are so-called bogus asylum seekers, not genuine refugees, and that they are a problem for the UK. And so therefore it is right to bring in incredibly strict laws to stop 
do you know discourage people from coming and make it difficult for people to get here and also be here so it's I believe it's new labor that introduces things like the ban on people working whilst they're waiting on their asylum claim to be processed I mean, what actually happens during the new Labour years is they do, that does shift. So at the same time as saying that immigration is good for the economy, there's also, there's a kind of, there's another side to that immigration discourse where they're saying, you know, people will be monitored, only the right people are going to be let in, only Mm. the productive people. And that includes certain people who would be classed as migrants. So there's still this kind of, you know, in the very idea of the bogus asylum seeker, is actually the implication that the person who is trying to come into the country, who is in the country, is a so-called economic migrant, and that is somehow a bad, negative thing. And that is that you know, it's people out for what they can get, as opposed to seeing it as people doing what they can in a system that is incredibly unequal globally in terms of our economy. And so, la- new Labour, the discourse on migration does get increasingly worse. I think more, uh, it gets increasingly worse. They they do things like. You know, publicizing immigration raids and like supposed crackdowns. They change the system so that people, I mean, it's really complex because there are so many rules and routes into the country under new labor that it's very hard to map. But what they do is for some people, they, people may be able to come here and work, but they have very few rights or it's very mm. difficult to get citizenship. It's very difficult to stay here after a certain amount of time. So you get some people spending money to get here and then they don't even, they aren't even able to recoup the amount that they've spent getting here by working because they're not here for long enough. And so like the rules change around people and New Labour are, are responsible for that. And then you get to a stage where you have Gordon Brown saying things like British jobs for British workers, right? And that is really the root, like the, it, get, it gets, I think it gets worse over time. And what, the reason why I think that this is important, not only because it's important to understand what New Labour were doing in office and the impact that that had on people's lives, but one of the big, what I would see as a misconception of the new Labour years that's still made by certain people today, the argument that's still made is that new anti-immigration feeling rose because new Labour simply let too many people into the country. And what that ignores is the very hostile rhetoric and the policy that was existed throughout the new Labour years, whether it be directed towards people who were seeking asylum or whether it be directed towards people who would be seen as immigrants. And so that they reproduced a lot of the racialized narratives about immigration that already existed and they didn't really chip away at them. So like I said at the beginning, they did have a slight shift in terms of this narrative on the economy. But in terms of like the idea of the problem immigrant and this being connected to race, they reinforced that in yeah. a lot of ways. And they didn't they didn't challenge it. And interesting in the book I I recount this incident in more detail, but you have a moment in early on in the new Labour years where the Runnymede Trust has this report out called The Future of Multi-Ethnic Britain. And there is, it's a report thinking about how Britain can be, they talk about Britain potentially being at a crossroads. They can either, the country can either take a very narrow exclusionary path or it can become more inclusive. And thinking about, I mean, there's problems with the report. Uh, There's criticisms that are made of it that that I think are legitimate. But, this report essentially is has a line in it where it says right in the in the most you know not in particularly strong terms it says something like there is still a link between Britishness and whiteness, hmm. which you know for a lot of us is evident. <laughs> and Jack Straw, who was supposed to speak at the report of the launch, he is kind of behind the report. I, I believe people who were um, involved in that report say that he'd seen drafts of it, was behind it. But then the tabloids have front pages 
about this report where it says they say things like, oh, it's now racist to be called, to use the term British because of this line about whiteness and Britishness. And Jack Straw's response to that is to essentially agree and say the left need to understand that patriotism isn't a bad thing. Mm. And so you have this moment, this kind of test, if yeah. you like, of, a, of someone who was heavily involved in the New Labour project and they don't come out of it particularly well. And this is against a backdrop of, you know, or subsequently new Labour politicians talking about empire as being both good and bad and not necessarily something that needs to be apologised for. And so there we can really see unwillingness to grapple with some of these questions about race and, and belonging, but actually moments where they reproduce, reinforce and create new forms of, of discourse about racialized identities and immigration. You've been listening to Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. If you would like to hear the extended version of this interview, please consider supporting the show via Patreon. You can find the page at patreon.com forward slash poll theory other. Thanks for listening. I'll be back next week.